Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are back for another, uh, it's not a quarantine edition of the podcast. I mean, we're not in, in quarantine, but we're all still remote you know, working remotely. Uh, we haven't been in our in our office, in our little podcast studio in our office in New York City for, what is it? I guess it's like five, five months. months, five months. I think no, Just uh, about March, exactly, yeah. yeah, March 11th. So yeah, almost exactly five months. Um, Hard to believe. I, I miss it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's so strange. I mean, and, and, and we, we're uh, lucky at TPM since not only do we do a kind of work that can be done remotely, that can be done from home, but because we have always had this workplace that is, that is in two cities or for you know, for almost 15 years, had a workplace that is in two cities, we already do a lot of, I mean, now it's this program Slack that probably many of you are familiar with. In the past, it was Skype. And in in the distant, distant past, it was actually um, AOL Instant Messenger. But the point is, since, since we're already used to doing a kind of remote thing, um, especially because our executive editor is based in our in our DC office, and that's the person who who runs the editorial team on a daily basis. That we already have a lot of muscle memory for doing our work with people who are not physically located with us, um, and that I think has played a big role in already having a lot of the the stuff that you kind of need to work uh, remotely. Still, it is a very different thing. We're used to uh, Kate now uh, lives and, 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 and works in D.C. and will uh, hopefully eventually one day uh, work, in a, work in our D.C. office. Uh, but uh, just, before the, just before COVID, uh, she moved to D.C. So, we, so David and I are used to having her as a co-worker in, in our office in, yep. uh, in New York. So it is, it, is, uh, it is very strange. And I think I certainly miss it. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's certainly some, some, some plus sides of, you know, kind of rolling out of bed and sitting in, you know, not having to commute and, and all, all that kind of stuff, but it does change. Uh, it, it certainly changes the workplace experience. There's, there's no question about that. And I think that, um, probably many of us, maybe most of us work is not only work, but it is also one of our our social experiences. It's where we see people who we know. Um, and, uh, you know, different people have different relationships with their, with their coworkers. But again, it's just, it, it's one of the things that makes you, that gives you elements of a, of a social existence, uh, basically. So it's a very, it's a very different thing. Um, let me, uh, remind everybody that the great the the Grady's the Grady's podcast is brought to you by Josh Marshall. <laughs> uh, Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you, uh, and they're helping you one way by sp- sponsoring the Josh Marshall podcast. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew yourself bean bags shipped directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre measured filter bags for. Gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equi- equipment required. And shipping is free on all Grady's bean bag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And uh, we were we were talking uh, yesterday in the virtual office about we just uh, we have new shipments going out of Grady's to uh, all members of the TPM staff because, you know, we need to keep uh, the blood stimulant level at an appropriate <laughs> level for people yeah, who work at TPM, even if there's even if even if there's no uh, uh, virtual office. I mean, I think this came up in the union negotiation, didn't it? You know, all all 
all everybody has to like maintain a certain kind of uh, uh, caffeine consumption. Um, I'm gonna get like a call from the NLRB, even though <laughs> even though they're now like staffed by Trump hacks, and they, they'll probably crack down on crack down on TPM. Anyway, David. What's up? So let's take it away. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, the big news of the day is Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Uh, we've been waiting for a couple weeks. This decision has been kind of imminent. I guess the the Biden campaign had said maybe the first week of August uh, he would announce his running mate. That got pushed to the second week of August. In the past 48 hours or so, it's just kind of been a fever pitch of coverage. Who will it be? Uh, there were a number of, bless you, Kate, number of finalists. Um, <laughs> among you know susan rice among them kamala harris obviously is the one who biden eventually chose and so i wanted to get uh your takes on that news josh just before we started recording you published a piece so we can kind of get into that a little bit but kate maybe you can start us off uh we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording just your reaction to the kind of news in general but what was your what was your impression or your your response to that decision yeah well it was funny because um yeah, David and I were just talking offline about how my Twitter timeline has just been so negative for so long, you know, whether it be casualty counts or, you know, the federal incompetence at dealing with the pandemic or the economy or the problems we're going to have with the election, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just the first time in recent memory that people have been, you know, excited and joyful. And of course, not everybody, but uh, you know, a good chunk of people who have been pretty much just drowning in the, you know, the morass of everything that's happening. Um, you know, there's been, I think, even though she was the predictable pick, the pick people thought he was going to go with, even, you know, back during the, the early stages of the Democratic primaries, there's seems to me to be some very palpable joy and excitement at her pick. Um, you know, and I think a good amount of that is the historic nature of it. But, you know, even the fundraising surge that they got after the announcement seems to show that there's been some real, uh, you know, calcified excitement behind her, which is something that the Biden campaign has been kind of lacking, given his position as, you know, just kind of the genial, affable alternative to this really divisive president. Um, yeah, so I've been, I was kind of taken aback, actually, at the, the surge of excitement that I saw pouring out after the choice, you know, considering that basically everybody knew that she was going to be the pick. I would say, I mean, is you know, it's, 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 it's funny, that is, I feel like that is both very true, but not altogether true. And some of that is that, I, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll find out that like, you know, Joe Biden was going back and forth until the last minute and only made his mind up and, you know, 20 minutes before it was announced. But it was, I mean, it is certainly the case that a year ago, people were saying, yeah, it's going to end up being Biden and he picks Harris as, as, as the uh, Veep. But I, they, they did a pretty good job keeping the suspense and, and, and certainly keeping the, the decision very tight. Um, you know, I, I, one of, if, if, for pe only for people who are as obsessive about things as I am, you know, there was one of the prediction markets, you know, where people kind of basically buy stocks in, in you know, as a, as a, as a prediction, uh, had, had Susan Rice as the pick, you know, yesterday afternoon. And I think that a lot of people, I know I was, I was worried, like, is he going to pick Susan Rice? And again, I've said this a million times in other contexts, I have no problem with Susan Rice. I think she's great. I think she would be great in any number of foreign policy roles. It's just that it, it, it makes no sense to pick a, a vice presidential candidate who has never participated in electoral politics, because you don't want to you know, see how it's going to go on the first run. There's just a lot of unpredictability. You don't know how they'll, how well they'll do. Um, you know, all of it. It's it's it's. Um, plus, they're they're not vetted. All that kind of stuff. So I think that there was for some people, but probably only like hardcore insiders and people who like fret about these things. I think there was some concern that he was going to, you know pick someone who people rightly or wrongly thought would just not be a great pick in political terms, just a lot of unpredictability. Um, but I was, I'm not sure I was surprised. I was, but I certainly, if someone had asked me an hour before, I wouldn't have put money on it. 
you know, so they really they, that's they, interesting. They, I yeah, definitely would have. Yeah, no, well, and clearly, you know, you were you were you were uh, more more on this than I was. I mean, I, I you know, I don't know what I would have said. I, I had no idea, but I certainly was not sure it was going to be Harris. By no means mm. was I sure. Uh, you know, they're they're. You know, who knows? Uh, but that's just my perception. I really was unclear who it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely the Susan Rice kind of, you know, not scare, but moment. There was a moment for a lot of... I feel of, bad saying this I as know, a scare. I know. That, I that's mean, you know, not the word yeah, I mean, yeah. but you know. And there but was it was, also, but that was kind of what... It, for a lot of insiders, that was kind of like, dude, don't do that. That right. is, That's just too too unpredictable why you know why you're gonna go there but i felt like a lot of the shortlist people had that moment like you know there would be a val demings moment or a karen bass moment and, and people would suddenly be interested in her and to some degree that's because you can't you know they were putting out lists of like the likeliest people you know various outlets were doing that weekly and harris was always number one but there's only so many stories you can write about still looks like it's going to be Harris. But, you know, on the Susan Rice front, I was just, I don't know, I kind of felt like Biden always trends towards caution. And at this point, when you're, I don't know, when you're ahead, why why do something crazy? You know, why be cute with absolutely. it? Pick well, someone that, who's vetted and not that controversial. Yeah, no, I, I think at least the logic of why people thought that was possible clearly by definition, a wrong, a wrong logic. But I think there was something to this was that he knows Susan Rice really well. That's he true. worked with her for eight years and she has been in the democratic foreign policy world for decades. She, I don't remember her exact role, but she, you know, she was in the Clinton administration, obviously more junior because she was much younger then. Um, but at a minimum, they worked together very closely for eight years. They, know each other well they've been together in very high stress situations and at least my understanding is is they're tight and and i think one of the things that biden saw up close is that obama when he picked biden even though i don't think they particularly knew each other that well when at the beginning that they clearly had a bond of of a great deal of trust and rapport and that Obama could, I mean, when, when, when Biden was picked, it was treated wrongly as a given he's too old to run for president. So you don't have to worry about him kind of angling and, you know, all this kind of stuff. He's all in just to make your presidency the best it can be. Um, and, and I suspect that's where Biden was at the time. Right. And so that kind of, the perception was, and I think this was was the attraction, was you want someone, they're not looking at, you know, running after you bow out after one term or positioning or all this kind of stuff. You want someone who's going to be in the foxhole with you to the very, very end, total trust. And I assume that was what made him give her close consideration. And that's what made me kind of fear that he would that he would make that uh, uh, choice. But as you say, Riley, Kate, you know, uh, Joe Biden is a is a cautious, conventional politician. So this did make uh, a lot of sense. And as we both said, I mean, this is people were saying this was going to happen a year ago. It, it just does make a lot of a lot of conventional sense and and you know i i think it's a good i think it's a good pick i think and and obviously it th- there's lots of reasons why it uh is a very historic pick and a pick that has really charged up a lot of people um so yeah you know i definitely do agree with you on the um the close relationship thing, because I think Biden is someone who sets store in feeling like he can trust the people, you know, that he has more than just a mutually beneficial political relationship. Um, And I think to any degree why this was so, you know, drawn out, and maybe it was just because they didn't want to announce till right before the convention, you know, it could be something as simple as that. But, you know, there has been a lot of talk about 
the fact that, you know, her biggest moment in the primary was going after him for the busing stuff. Um, and, you know, from, for all accounts, from what I've read, he was actually quite taken aback by her um, aggression in that moment, especially because, you know, she was fairly close with his son, Bo, you know, who's died. So I, I am curious, you know, if I could be a fly on the wall, I would, I'd love to know kind of where they're at personally. Yeah, you know, are we yeah. still at a place where, and, you know, your point is right. Maybe you can never... Maybe it's rare to have a relationship with your vice president before you pick them. Like you rightly said, Biden and Obama didn't really know each other. That just happened to kind of be luck, I guess, that they gained this kind of mutual respect and affection. But right, right. I don't know. I'd be I'd be interested if that was something that he had to be talked into picking someone who maybe checked more boxes, but who didn't particularly check the the trust friend inner circle thing. Right. It's funny because that that was certainly and again. As you said, we often find out that that our our guesses and perceptions were just told had you know just had nothing to do with anything. But at least the idea was that look, Harris is the obvious pick. So the fact that you're not picking her yet, and this is kind of going past your self-imposed schedule, must mean that kind of like you just can't get there with Harris. You just you know kind of can't make the leap. So you're coming up with all these other people who you might pick. Now again good as chances any that that is just totally nothing to do with what happened at all. But at least that was what made people think that the, you know, Bass, uh, uh, Susan Rice, that the, that these were, um, you know, these were the chance. I mean, I, I would say that certainly, um, my recollection was that sort of everybody was caught off guard by how hard she went at him in that one debate. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if he was. Um, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong to do. Just, I, you know, I think that was kind of the point. I mean, she made a stir, right? I mean, she, that, that kind of galvanized the, the race. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know, obviously, I don't know Joe Biden. I mean, the only real interaction with him is I did a, about an hour-long sit-down interview with him like basically in like 2004. Uh, but my sense of him, just from what I hear, is obviously puts a lot of store by trust and, and sort of, you know, rapport and intimacy. But I don't get the sense he that he's the kind of person that's sort of like, man, you, you crossed me once and you're dead to me. Like you're never coming. I, that, that doesn't, you know, just my li very limited sense based on hearing about him in various contexts for many years that doesn't that doesn't sound like the guy we're talking about um but you know who knows what do you what do you make about the trump campaign's kind of initial i guess reactions or attacks against harris i mean katrina pearson the trump campaign spokesperson put out a pretty extreme statement yesterday that at one on the one hand attempted to paint harris as someone who wants to disband police departments, but at the same time, kind of painter as like an overzealous prosecutor, right? And so it seems like they're having a hard time picking a lane with which to, I guess, you know, push back on her or kind of go after her credentials. But what do you make of kind of the, the early signals so far? Well, I mean, I think if the Biden campaign is looking for any side that they pick the right person, it's the fact that the Trump campaign can't figure out what they're doing. Though to some degree, I do think right now they're just kind of throwing fistfuls of spaghetti at the wall and seeing which attack line is the most, you know, salient, and then they'll stick with that. But I mean, the problem with Harris, that is probably the reason that Biden didn't pick, say, you know, a Warren who would have galvanized progressives more, is that Harris is just harder to attack in that way, you know, and I know Republicans really like the idea of painting Biden as like, you know, he's old, he's squishy, he's movable, he's a, a shell, and he's going to be pumped full of radical ideas by his vice president, but that's never who Harris was. And it's something that's working to her benefit now that I think really hobbled her during the presidential primary is that she is kind of like Biden, an amorphous, democratic, centrist politician, which means it's really hard to call her a radical because she's never even really been a progressive, you know? So I think that's part of the reason why the Trump campaign is going in circles right now, trying to call her a cop and also call her, you know, a, a radical who wants to defund the police and 
you know, there's, there are nuggets there that I think they could calcify behind because obviously her prosecutorial record uh, is problematic, especially for younger Democratic voters. But I don't know. Right now, I was kind of taken aback by how scattered they seemed after the announcement because they too have had months to expect this coming. And it just, it was a very much like, Anything you got, toss it. You know, just yeah. It was a strong kind of like a primal scream, sort of like yeah. Just and 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 to some extent, I think this has always been. Uh, this is always what this is always what, not just this Trump campaign, but Trump campaigns have been like. Consistency is not their thing, right? They're <laughs> yeah. kind of the, you know uh, just uh, it's it's. In, in a lot of ways, Trump and Trumpism is about the ideology of attack and the ideology of aggression. Um, and in some ways, I think we kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're reading the libretto and it's the score that is, that is really what's, what's going on. So I think there's some of that, but I think to, ex, to a significant extent, like, like you said, they don't really know how to deal with her politically. Whereas Warren, you could have made a coherent argument, look, she is on the left. She's talking about big structural economic change in the country. Biden is just kind of a wishy-washy guy. So like Warren is the story here and she wants to do this and that. Um, and whether they could, whether they could uh, do something with that is, is, is an open question. But there's a strong reality to that. And that's why a lot of people wanted Warren. Um, and I, like, I, would, I would put it a little differently with... Uh, um, Harris, and that's partly because you know centrist has become a very loaded word in 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 democratic politics. To me, she is like Biden, although from a different generation, a sort of a median policy Democrat. She's always going to be basically where the Democratic Party is at any given moment. That's kind of how I see her. She's not particularly ideological. Um, like I would have, I mean, I, I would say one of the ways she actually got in a bit of trouble um, during the primaries is by, you know, someone said, well, you know, are you for Medicare for all? Absolutely for Medicare for all without kind of like, okay, wait a second. That means that X is going to happen and Y is going to happen. You know, you know, kind of, all right, where do you want me to be? And I'll be there kind of, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, uh, politics, but that does make any argument about, you know, she's a secret Antifa agent and stuff like that. Just, just not credible. I mean, if anything, she is more in the direction of, you know, kind of machine politics, not in a not in a kind of a hard machine politics sense, but she came up kind of in a, in a conventional way through the, you know, through the California Democratic Party, um, was a DA, then she was attorney general, and then she was a sort of, you know, went for the Senate seat and got it. Um, so, yeah, the, the, any sense that she's like an ideologue just doesn't really add up in any, in any meaningful sense. And similarly, uh, yeah, you know, she's like, you know, she's defund the police and, 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 you know, pro mob riot and also like invented mass incarceration. Right. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I think, I think they are scattered. I don't, I think they don't know what to make of her, but I think if you kind of put it all together, what they're really saying is she's black. She is black and she, she is scary. And She's going to she's going to ruin your suburbs. And, you know, to to it is it is certainly a. Um, in the vernacular of American politics, there is a way, certainly on the right, that when you're saying she's radical, you're kind of saying she's black and blacks are always going to be radical when you kind of get down to it because they're black. And, and so I think that meta message is is where they are going to go it's where they already are going um and that's, that's a good, you know that's a that, good point josh yeah because just this morning trump tweeted you know his kind of racist appeal to suburbanites once again saying joe Biden and cory booker will kind of go after your suburbs and he didn't mention kamala harris in the in this particular tweet but it obviously came you know about 12 hours or maybe less than 24 hours after Biden chose her as his running mate. So it's, it seems pretty clear. It's not even a dog whistle. It's a pretty explicit 
bullhorn to uh, go after her with. And it's also, it's funny that he has this, I mean, clearly we know one of the biggest things that has happened in politics in the last uh, decade, but particularly since Trump was elected or, you know, since Trump came on the scene is suburban women, uh, largely suburban white women, a kind of a traditional sort of swing, you know, swing group between, between Democrats and Republicans moving decisively in, in the Democratic direction. And some of that is, some of that is, you know, kind of people who are Democrats or soft Democrats getting much more energized and, and politically involved. And some of it is, some of it is, is, you know, generational change, but a lot of it is just people switching because, because Trump is perceived and to a great extent perceived rightly as, as just something new or, you know, on the scene. But what I'm struck by is, you know, he keeps talking about suburban housewives <laughs> and, the the group that we are talking about, you know, by and large, is women outside of cities in suburbs, mostly with college educations. That, that is often being a differentiator between you know between the parties right now. Um, certainly, some of these women are stay-at-home moms, but I would say very few identify as a suburban housewife. I mean, that is such a dated term. I mean, to put it mildly, right? Um, not to mention that 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 many of these people have careers and are, you know, often the primary breadwinner. So it's just he's he, he is uh, coming with something that is really out of the past. And I think the, you know, in some ways that is just because he is out of the past and, and, and sort of, uh, uh, lost in our current politics and doesn't <clears throat> grasp the idiom of a lot of our current politics. But on the other hand, a lot of it is by design because that is his whole thing of going back, making America great again, i.e., putting the people who are supposed to be in charge back in charge again. Um, so it's both, it is, it mixes an element of cluelessness, um, but also by design. And, and uh, you know, you can, you can see by the degree to which uh, they are still hyper-focused on, you know, the riots and the mobs and the violence and the rising crime and all this kind of stuff. Even though that has, you know, in a factual sense, in a factual sense, largely receded to the to the background, that that's their whole thing. That the Democrat, you know, it's going to be crime. It's going to be a lot of black people. And uh, if you're enjoying your your kind of white life in the suburbs, you got to be scared and vote for Donald Trump. I mean, that is really his entire campaign at this point. Right. Maybe last uh, question on this topic, Kate. What do you? What, what, how do you expect the VP debate to play out, Kamala Harris uh, going up against Mike Pence? You know, it's kind of funny because I think in some ways the fact that COVID has totally scuttled this campaign season works as much in Harris's favor as it does Biden's because I think she's really, really good when she's prepared and when she knows what's coming. Like, that's why I think she was so effective against Biden in that first debate. Um but as we saw then with the subsequent debates, after she got that bump in the poll from that pretty effective attack, she couldn't really handle it. You know, she didn't perform as well. Um, she had trouble kind of handling attacks that she wasn't prepared for. Um, and so to that degree, I think she will be really effective against Pence because she's not competing against a field of like 10 Democrats who she has no idea which line of her resume they're going to take issue with. You know, it's, she's going to be able to prepare for what Pence is going to throw at her. And then you just have the, the personality difference, you know, um, and you've got, you know, she, I think is pretty widely considered to be charismatic and, um, you know, her prosecutorial skills really shine in situations like that whereas you know Pence is pretty robotic pretty you know low key, low key of a of a person you know that's why I think he was put with Trump but you know so in that matchup I think 
you know, unless he pulls out kind of some debate skills that we haven't seen up until this point, you know, I can pretty easily envision a situation where she makes mincemeat of him, you know, not the least because you've got the dynamic hovering over this whole thing that he has his crazy sexist, I can only be alone with my wife and no other woman. Thing. I mean, that's bound to come up, you know, so it's kind of the first time he's going to be held to account by a woman for these kind of, you know, weird misogynistic things that he's said that have gone kind of under the radar because you have Trump, you know, sexually assaulting women and being so much more egregious. I think I think one thing with with Pence is that, you know, his big thing as vice president has been total subservience, total support of of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, it's pretty clear. I mean, I'm a little fuzzy on this now. But at least I recall in, you know, after the Access Hollywood tape came out, I mean, he was like, you know, no movement, right? He is always behind Trump, no matter what. Uh, even, well, it, it, it's complicated when you get into uh, the mix of, you know, patriarchy and squeamishness about sex with him. On the one hand, you know, totally in line with Pence, you know, the guys are in charge tell the women what to do. On the other hand, obviously, the, the sexual purism and stuff with, with, with Pence. But in any case, total subservience to Trump. But if you watch, one of the things he has, has done, and it's particularly with, with COVID, is he has been up there kind of like, Donald Trump's doing great. He is awesome. He is killing it here. I mean, you know, more ways than one uh, with COVID. At the same time, if you watched with, and, and if you listen closely, a lot of the governors were saying, yeah, Trump was out there like, you know, going nuts on Twitter and stuff. And then Mike Pence called and like, you know, we kind of worked it out. So Pence has, in many cases, been able to, you know, profess Trump loyalism, but act a little more normally kind of behind the scenes and keep things sort of moving along. And I don't I can't really, you know, I, I guess I don't pay that close attention to the interviews that Pence does, but I don't think he's done many like real interviews like off Fox News and stuff like that. So I do think one of the things will be that um, he will have to, he, whether it's by Harris or by a host, he's going to get presented with some of Trump's crazy shit. And He's going to have to address that in a very public way and in a way where people can talk back to him, whether that is Harris or the, you know, or the debate moderators. And so that, I think, is, is you know, at, at, at some level, and I think we've seen this in, in, in previous debates, vice presidential candidates kind of quicker on their feet than the other vice. I mean, who cares, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of fun for partisans to see your uh, guy or gal, you know, kind of kick the other side's butt or something. I mean, I think there was a, you know, a correct perception that Biden really kind of handled Paul Ryan pretty well in, uh, God, I'm losing track now. That was 2012. 2012. Yeah. Uh, and that was one thing was, you know, because Obama had a pretty shaky first debate in 2012. And one of the things was that, you know, Biden, you know, got Biden back in there and, you know, kind of steadied everybody's nerves or whatever. But that's really the part that I think will be interesting to me, at least, is he's going to get hit with a lot of, or I would assume a lot of, just the kind of the totally off bullshit that Trump has done. And uh, that'll be, that'll be in, in many ways, that to me will be a bigger challenge than, you know, yes, she's got, she's a more dynamic personality. She's a better debater. Um, but at some level, all he has to, has to do is say, you know, I love President Trump and we're going to make America great again. You know, what else does he need to say? She can kind of like, you know, run circles around him and who cares. But that is an issue. And I'm curious how that's going to play out. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can spend the, the last few minutes of the episode talking about uh, primary night last night. We had a few different races uh, in Minnesota. Ilan Omar won her her primary. Uh, and then in Georgia, uh, 
a race that Kate has been following pretty closely, Marjorie Green, a QAnon, uh, more than QAnon curious, QAnon full embracer, uh, won a runoff for the Republican primary for a, a House seat there. Kate, tell us kind of, uh, you know, what's been happening in that race lately, um, kind of how it went last night, and, and even Trump kind of got in on the action this morning too, huh? Yeah, I don't This race is so fascinating to me because after, you know, in the first round, she came out ahead like 20 points over John Cohen was the other Republican. He's a neurosurgeon. And, you know, you can say that she's nuttier than he is, but he is by no means like a <laughs> kind of middle of the road Republican, you know, like they were are just kind of having fisticuffs constantly over who loves Trump more kind of stuff. She just also happens to have the QAnon piece. But, you know, so... That happened, and then Politico uncovered this tranche of um, videos she'd done on Facebook where she is just, she's virulently racist. You know, she calls George Soros a Nazi, who we know is a Holocaust survivor. I mean, Islamophobic. She runs the gamut, you know. And um, at that point, you know, national Republicans were kind of like, whoa, okay, this is a lot. You know, we just got rid of Steve King. Finally, um, and they made some noise that, you know, said they were disgusted, appalled. Uh, Steve Scalise ended up holding one fundraiser for for Cohen, the other Republican. But that's it. Like that's when it ended. You know, outside groups, you know, the kind of the big money machines of the Republican Party passed on the race. The national Republicans didn't really get involved again. As recently as last week, uh, Kevin McCarthy was saying, you know, he's spoken to both candidates, likes them both, good relationship with both. And I just think that is such a profound statement about where the Republican Party is, that these guys have to be afraid of alienating someone like Marjorie Greene, who is, you know, as much as she is eyeballs deep in this conspiracy theory, she also is pretty clearly a bigot, you know, and they don't have the legs right now to say, no, we're not going to take that or even to pretend on a surface level that that's not acceptable to them, you know, so... The race played out as it did. Um, she put in a million dollars of her own money. And then last night, polls closed at seven. You could pretty much tell she was going to win by eight. You know, it wasn't even that close at the end. Um, I, I, I think one, you know, one thing just to sort of affirm your point, Kate, and, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, QAnon is, is this word and a lot of us, some of us don't know quite, quite what it means besides just kind of crazy conspiracy theory stuff. Um, and some, you know, don't know at all. But let's be clear what this is. This is a conspiracy theory that endorses and predicts mass murder of the president's political opponents. So this isn't just kind of like you thought there was a flying saucer. This is very malevolent, very violent and aggressive stuff. And this kind of makes your point. It's not like this is like a Trumper versus like an old style to the extent that, you know, kind of Obama era Republicans were old style. Uh, this is th th this is now the division, whether you are full on Trump supporter and all the stuff that goes along with that and building the wall and stuff, or you are part of this movement that, again, endorses genocide against the president's political right. followers. And that's where we are. That's the you know, that's the big tent now from from Trumper to to genocide. Right. Uh, and and as you said, I mean, that is it's it's one thing, Kate, that, that they did not pull all, you know, pull out all the stops to try to defeat her. But you can at least kind of say, oh, this is not the Republican Party, I believe. You know, you can you can mm -hmm. kind of signal at some level that this is not great, right? <laughs> even if even if you're not, um, you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, obviously they took away Steve King's committee assignments, which is, which is a, about as much as a political party can do and is quite a bit it's that that's a big deal it's kind of not much for you to do in congress if you don't have any committee work you just you know you can do constituent service and you can vote obviously uh but yeah that's pretty striking and, and if i'm not mistaken trump went on twitter this morning and said like dude awesome i love her she's great you know future future republican star I yeah. believe is how he <laughs> I mean, referred well, to her and part of this that's interesting because i've done like a lot of reporting um on QAnon and kind of what it means to be a Q supporter. 
Um, and I talk to a lot of people who, you know, are kind of experts in conspiracy theories. And there is, there's a lot of interesting stuff there because adherence to Q, Ken, who's the, the anonymous, um, like, founder, kind of, sorry. He's, like, dropping clues about when the, the mass genocide will happen, everything like that. But, you know, I talked to a lot of people who said that kind of holding up a Q sign at a Trump rally might kind of mean more layered things than the most insane parts of the conspiracy theory. You know, it's a way to uh, show that you love Trump, you know, for one thing, who's kind of the messianic figure in the conspiracy theory. It also shows that you don't trust the establishment, that you are an outsider. Um, and, you know, the, as one um, professor told me, kind of the policy positions that being into Q leads you to is pretty, it's mainstream Republican stuff. You know, you've got hatred of the Clintons, you've got uh, conviction that you need to have a, an arsenal of guns at all times. Like that stuff, that's, mainstream Republican at this point, you know, a hatred of socialism, that kind of thing. Um, but what's, so that kind of made more sense to me when you have, because there's a long list of candidates who are giving kind of winks at QAnon, you know, who are like, have a Q in their profile, or the motto is where we go one, we go all, and they'll tag something with that. But Green, you know, has videos where she talks about the Satanist cabal that's made up of, you know, the Clintons and George Soros and like Chrissy Teigen sometimes, you know, and <laughs> talks about, you know, she is excited that we now have a president who can take this cabal out. You know, I mean, she's not kind of, she seems to not be doing what other Republican candidates are doing, which is to use Q to signal, I'm like you for all these other reasons, you know. Like and a cute dog whistle, sort of right, like like a exactly. deniable kind of way, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like the other, the only other candidate, Matt um, Matt Chuham and I kind of tracked all of the QAnon curious candidates this cycle. And the only other one who's probably going to win is Lauren Boebert in Colorado's third district. And she did some Q stuff, and then you know, a reporter asked her about it, and she's like, no, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm just I'm just checking it out. That's more of my mom's thing. Blah blah blah. You know, immediately backpedaled. And that's something that. You know, Green is the Trumpiest candidate I've seen yet. She just, she has made her, made the name for herself by refusal to apologize, refusal to modulate. You know, she's decided this is who she's going to be. And everyone who has a problem with QAnon are people who she already hates anyway. So why does she care? You know, she tweeted last night after kicking all the reporters out of her victory party and said, you know, tell your reporter buddies not to bother calling me, um truly the enemy of the people. And one of the people that she had actually made those comments in, in the retweet, is this 18-year-old kid in Georgia who's super into politics, super into data, you know, and her followers chased him off Twitter. So, I mean, she is not the kind of person who's going to modulate or apologize or even respond when people say you realize what you're, what you're advocating for is insane. You know, she that's she'll just stick to her guns. I'm sure. It's interesting that one of the and 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 for our listeners who don't and and it's a there's a lot of stuff in the sort of the Q subculture, but the basic idea is that, you know, it looks like President Trump is unpopular and it looks like he's on the ropes and it looks like the deep state is is you know screwing with him at every at every turn, but really he's laying in wait. He's setting traps for them and he's winning, not losing. And they're, and they don't even know it. And, and he's biding his time for when he is going to round them up and do them in. And it's funny that, I mean, you know, at various levels, that is like insane, scary stuff. But one, one of the things that has always interested me is it has a lot of roots in the eschatological thinking of many religious traditions, especially from their beginning, when when you have a, a embattled religious community, it is a sort of standard thing or, or something that comes up again in many traditions, comes up in Christianity, it comes up in early Judaism, and comes up in Islam, uh, and again, other other religious traditions around the world that it looks like God has abandoned us and it looks like God's people 
everything's going wrong for us. But in fact, that is not the story at all. Precisely the opposite of the story. God is waiting and he has our back and he's going to come in and wipe out all the other bad people. And then everything will be as it should be. Um, again, this is, this is a basic motif, uh, through all the religions that, that, stem from Judaism, Christianity, Islam. There's versions of it in, in, uh, in, in, in almost all religious traditions, but especially in the, in the three religious traditions that dominate the, the, the Western world. So it's just, <laughs> it, it's kind of striking that because there is this, I mean, again, this is how cults operate. Mm-hmm. Mo- many cults have this idea kind of like it's, we are the only elect people and we're waiting for this big thing to happen where we or God or some powerful force wipes everybody else out and, and puts us in charge like we're supposed to be. So when, when, uh, people say, you know, Trumpism is a cult, it is kind of a cult or at least this part of Trumpism. And to your point, I think that's right. That, that I'm sure if a lot of people at rallies who you see with like a Q sticker or something like that, if you said to them, you know, do you really endorse like you know kind of mass killing or 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 you know putting all democrats in internment camps i'm sure a lot of them would say oh, of course not I, you know this is we don't really believe that or maybe they don't even you know maybe they just kind of know the cue is sort of that has some you know kind of mm-hmm. taboo or something like that but it's also true that um uh most people many people who say obviously racist things either you know if you said like do you really think like black people shouldn't be able to vote or, or like black people should be slaves? Uh, many of those people will either say, of course, you know, I don't really believe that. And some of them may mean they don't really believe, you know, they don't actually think that. So it's not, it, it is not uncommon that movements have sort of cores of belief, mm-hmm. but also have sort of penumbras of soft believers who may not kind of buy into the whole thing, but just like the sort of the transgressive right. allure of it. So that is not um, uh, that is not that different from all sorts of uh, political, you know, affiliation. Right. Uh, but the fact that it is, and you know, and again, for for people who are not for listeners who are not familiar with Q there does appear to be one anonymous person who started this and continues through kind of encrypted messages to have updates. And he's supposedly, you know, the idea is he's some national security or intelligence insider on the inside. Who's giving you the real information. Um, you know, call me naive, but I suspect that is not the case. Right. (laughs) And and when it first started, I kind of thought, look, maybe this is just some like, you know, kind of like Democrat goofing on these people. Right. But it's gone on so long now that, that I suspect it is just some Trump person, or frankly, maybe it's someone from a foreign country or maybe it's a foreign government. I mean, it, it, that is kind of a, a, a weird thing. And again, my, at least my understanding is that um, whoever this person is continues to, to release messages with uh, like an encrypted signature, which should mean that you know it's one person who has access to an encrypted signature. So it can't just be like, I can go on Reddit and say, hey, it's Q again. Here's my latest update, right? Yeah. Which, which, which adds this kind of like new level of... Um, mystery and bizarreness to it that there's some secret person out there doing this which is also interesting because one of the experts told me that QAnon is not you know I asked him like this seems so weird to me is this beyond the pale of conspiracy theories and he was like no there are conspiracy theories that have no relation to anything that's going on at all you know like this isn't so weird in the grand scheme of conspiracies but he said something that is really dangerous to the structure of the conspiracy theory is that there are q-led predictions about things happening on specific dates and he said as soon as you get out of the ambiguity and into those specifics that's when you're really endangering the conspiracy theory because 
at some point, people are going to be like, okay, didn't happen again. Hillary's still not in Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, for some people, that's going to be it. There's always going to be a way to explain it away. You know, say, oh, a media blackout. You know, maybe she's cloned. Who knows? But for a good amount of people, especially, as you said, Josh, those who are not in, like, the diehard kind of fever swampy 4chan parts of this, they're going to be like, well, that's nuts, you know. But for those people on the outside, you know, some of these experts describe it to me as more of like either a way to be politically engaged. You know, it's, it's a weird kind of political activism to be an armchair investigator, you know, to try to figure out like who are these sealed indictments against, you know, that was a big theme during the Mueller stuff that like he was actually not working against Trump. He was actually using this position to find Trump's enemies and to send them to Guantanamo Bay and this kind of stuff. And then there's also a piece of it that um, one professor described it to me as like a fable. You know, you have these deep beliefs that you and Trump are good and that, you know, Hillary Clinton, Democrats are bad. And so it's this way of kind of intertwining these taboos that are old as the hills, you know, to accuse your enemies of cannibalism and Satanism and pedophilia and the, the most heinous crimes in our society. It's kind of just a way of like illustrating this dynamic, you know, that you're on, you're on the good side. They're not just on the bad side, they're on the evil side. And that is the dynamic, you know? So it's just, it's really fascinating. There are so many different kind of threads of this, you know, and the fact that we have I don't know that we have Marjorie Green now. She's, you know, almost certainly not going to lose in November. She's going to be in Congress. So, Kate, what are some of the date anchors to these predictions? Like, are they? And because because one thing that occurs to me is again, there was a lot of, there was a number of interesting sociological studies. I think in the middle of twentieth century, which basically showed that, um, you know, you would think religion slash cult has like, okay, you know, the world is going to end on this date and right. this is going to happen and that happen. When it doesn't happen, you think everybody's like, okay, man, <laughs> guess I picked the wrong cult because this didn't pan out. When in fact, what happens is that it intensifies the belief in most cases. Some people drift off. Um, but the, the, the dominant thing is it intensifies. Pe- people uh, believe even more deeply. I... Uh, God, I, I can't remember if it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists have uh, the world was supposed to end about a century ago and obviously didn't, or at least maybe it didn't. We don't know. And that's why things are so messed up. Um, but in any case, didn't end the religion. It it, it intensified, intensified things. And um, for those who one of the one of the interesting things about these in psychology of religion and 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 whatever for people who study uh christianity from this perspective not from a not only from a belief perspective one of the arguments from these studies is that this is part of the origins of christianity and again uh there's academic study of the sociology of religion this is not meant to sort of uh uh, throw into doubt uh, 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 people's belief, but the idea that there was a an immediate expectation that Jesus would come back very soon, like within months or years, and you can actually see if you study the um, if you study the the New Testament, and particularly like in Paul's letters. Paul thinks that Jesus's return is something in the, in the genuine Pauline letters, which is only a subset of the ones that are in the New Testament. Paul clearly sees Jesus's return as something that's going to happen really soon, probably within his lifetime. And that the argument is that, that a lot of the progression of Christianity is kind of wrestling with like, okay, the, our initial understanding didn't pan out. So clearly we need to rethink what this was about. And again, this is, uh, this is not, um, this this psychological insight is not incompatible with Christian belief because even internal to Christianity, it's sort of understood that the people there at the beginning thought that everything was going to wind up very quickly um, and that and that Jesus's return was something that was going to happen in most of their lifetimes, et cetera. In any case, um, 
I'm getting us pretty far afield here. Uh, but it is interesting that, again, these you see these uh, dynamics playing out. And yes, that's, that does explode some conspiracy theories. But others, it, 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 it intensifies. Right. Uh, because people, you know, people come to believe things so deeply that, um, you know, when it's your belief and what you see, you got to bring what you see in line with your belief because that's where your real, that's where your real, um, you know, commitment is. Right. And I mean, therein lies the danger of as much as we can say, like, you know, this is so there are really goofy elements to this conspiracy theory, you know. Um, And as much as I do believe that a lot of people who like wear Q shirts to a rally are not advocating for, you know, Democrats to be like slaughtered. But the I mean, we've seen this play out, you know, someone went to that that pizza shop in D.C. with a machine gun, you know, because he was convinced that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were running a child sex ring. And that sounds ridiculous to most of us. But to one person, you know, that was enough to provoke him to go and take action and in his mind to, you know, commit violence. So haven't there actually been a couple? I mean, that predates, you know, right. Which yeah, kind of a, that's the John the Baptist of, of, uh, of, 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 of Q. Um, but haven't there been a few Q, like a few incidents where either a Q person attacked someone or there was mm-hmm. a plot or something like that? So it's it's not the, the the idea that this could result in violence is not theoretical. Right. Like it's already happened, hasn't it? Or right. what were the what were the actual instances? Um, I don't remember specifics off the top. But I want to say, wasn't there a shooting in Staten Island that was a Q supporter, uh, maybe a mafia boss or something? Wasn't oh, there a Q right. connection? Right. That? This is this, okay. That, that is only one of them. But yes, this is right. This is this is an unreal story. This guy kills a mafia boss, a real mafia boss. So everybody sees this and says, "All right, you know, kind of a mafia hit, whatever." No one kills a mafia. You know, if you kill a mafia boss, you were doing it for serious reasons. But it actually ends up this guy was like a Q guy and thought he was like helping Trump. Right. So I'm like totally insane. Right. I mean, just just and I don't even know how it fit together. But I do feel like there's been a handful of cases where I mean, obviously, that guy was killed. um, But I feel like there's been a handful of cases of violent incidents that were tied to being a Q supporter. Right. I mean, and we also saw that rash of standoffs recently of um you know, people who kind of exist in these amorphous, like, Q, Antifa, kind of that cloud of pro-Trump conspiracy theory kind of things who have been, you know, bringing out their machine guns to their, like, tiny towns ready for invasions and destabilization. You know, and all that stuff kind of exists in the same neighborhood. And all of these kind of belief systems tend to involve a love of guns and a love of the second amendment. And that is always just a scary and explosive situation. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the meta point here, and you can see this with, with the overlap with the boogaloo stuff, which is something we can talk about in another episode. Um, the, the, the deep theme that unites them all is our enemies are evil. We have guns and eventually we need to use them against our enemies because they're evil and we need to get rid of them. Um, and again, that's the Boogaloo thing. That's the Q thing at, it, at, it, at its core. You know, precisely Trump is going to do this or that's going to happen on this date. It's these are political movements based on revenge fantasies of, of a kind of a cleansing of society through violence on eliminating your enemies. And that's the kind of, and <laughs> needless to say, that's pretty dangerous. When when that be, when when that kind of thinking starts colonizing conventional politics, even as sort of like probably for most people just kind of transgressive and and you know kind of a revenge fantasy, but things you fantasize about have a way of you know happening if you get yeah. enough people thinking along the same lines. Well, on that on that note, I think that's about all the time we have <laughs> this week. But obviously, more to uh, more to cover on this topic, Kate, and you know, keep us posted on your reporting and and all the 
you know, other updates that come across this. So remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, it's the greatest stuff. Uh, we live on it. We collectively here at, uh, at at TPM, and it's 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 really great stuff. We live on it because it's actually that good. The sponsorship gro- grows out of that. Uh, and you can get it at Grady'sColdBrew.com. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. You can buy it at your local grocery store. If you're a first-time buyer at the website at Grady'sColdBrew.com, you can get 20% off with the TPM uh, offer code. So that's it. All right. Check it out. See you guys later. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye.